0: We're going to go ahead and move into the teaching text for this morning, which comes from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, O oh God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings, offered whole. Then, then bowls will be offered on your altar. Says the word of the Lord.
1: Morning. One of the uh, worst instances um, of trouble that I got myself into as a kid um, was a night. I was a freshman in high school, and I apologize to the parents for this story, uh, but uh, several of my friends and I, we told our parents that we were going to be staying at each other's houses, but uh, really we borrowed uh, one of our, our friend's parents' car and we went cruising around. Um, and I'll spare you and me some of the details of the night, but it ended with uh, with me being brought back uh, to my house by the police. And uh, honestly, that's a pretty good result for what could have happened. Um, but uh, so this has become a little bit of a famous story in my family because I got brought back home by the cops. And uh, it happened to be my sister's 11th birthday and she was having a sleepover. And so instead of angry parents answering the door for the uh, officers, it was like 10, 11 year old girls uh, (laughs) who were then like shocked at the delinquency of uh, Andrea's brother. And just like, what sort of home are we staying in? Um, Right at that moment with 11 uh, or 10, 11 year old girls at the bottom of our stairs. My father comes having just woken up in an incredibly grumpy mood. Now that his son's been brought home by the cops stomping down the stairs in like white t-shirt and underwear. So now the, the, the kid's horror is just skyrocketing. Um, and he was utterly furious with me. It was one of those moments where it's like, we, I'm so mad. We can't even get into it right now. Just go to bed. I banish you from my presence and tomorrow I shall punish you to no end. Um, so the next day, this is this is pre-cell phone, so we have no opportunity to text through the night and work out our stories as a, as a group of friends that have been uh, busted uh, entirely. And so uh, before I had a chance to talk to anybody that I was out with the night before, I find myself sitting on... on in my living room, across the board, with every parent um, in the room, and we hadn 't had any chance to work out what we were going to say and This became very obvious because we started answering the questions wrong and differently, and so it would be like, "Did you guys drink two yeses and a no um, and sort of like, "Ah, did you guys smoke two nos and a yes uh, did you guys drive and then everyone 's like uh, sort of looking at each other and I never in my life wished more that I'd had an opportunity to get my story straight. Um, and though that is an extreme example, it's something that I return to in my mind qu- quite a bit because that feeling of sort of panic and feeling of like, uh, I'm caught here, I'm exposed, and I don't know exactly um, what to say to make the wave of what's coming next uh, Diminish by, by, by any means. Um, and so. Though that's one of the most searing examples in my mind, I've felt that feeling many times, and I wonder if you can relate to, to feeling that feeling. When, when we get caught in something, uh, when we know we're in the wrong in something, there, there can be a profound sense that rises up in us that I want to explain my motivations for how we got to this place. I want to, to reason out my explanation. I want to, to rationalize the choices that I made. I want to I minimize uh, what, what, what's happened. Um, I, I, I want to concoct an elaborate plan to to ensure that nothing like this is going to happen again. And, and, and mom and dad or God or boss or whoever, you don't have to worry about me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be on a different trajectory now. I have another very strong memory from from that time in my life, just a few years uh, actually after the police brought me home. I was talking to a friend and um, he was a friend whose walk with God I respected because it seemed different than mine. It seemed more robust in some way, more meaningful. And um, I, yeah, just like the way he lived was something I admired. And I remember hearing him say this, and it was sort of shocking to me that that he would have thoughts like this, uh, but it also made something click for me that had never really uh, clicked in that way before. And so my friend Ben, he, he said, uh, I'm starting to think that God wants me just to come to him with all the mess that I have made and the things that I think I need to fix, just to go ahead and come to God in prayer instead of trying to get myself together and then coming. And I feel like that type of sentiment is repeated so often in, in, in church that maybe that just feels like the most obvious observation in the world to you. But the first time you hear something like that, it can be really meaningful because um, I, I, I realized um, something sank down into my heart that I realized on some level I had often approached God the same way I approached my parents that morning when I was so thoroughly caught. It was, I had so often approached God like a disappointed parent. <laughs> And uh, that God was basically, if you had to boil down His posture towards me in one word, it was like disappointed. You know, like I know I, I know I threw a lot of potential in there when you were when you were coming coming into the world, and maybe one day you'll 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 start to to realize some of some of that potential. But um, I, I realized listening to my friend Ben talk that I had related to God so much like a disappointed parent, and so basically felt like, okay, I'm going to come back to God at some point in my life, or I'm going to come to God at some point soon, but I've got a bunch of stuff that I need to work out first, and once I get that stuff worked out or rationalized or planned, or or I've got, an, in a sense, like a good speech to make to God, then I can come to Him. So here, my friend, who I already thought was like 10 times better than me as a person, saying he felt like God was inviting him just to go ahead and come and bring all the mess that actually it's in the presence of God that the mess gets worked out, that... Was really meaningful to me. I, I, I spent a lot of time kind of basically afraid of God, like wondering what are the consequences going to be? How much do I have to promise that I'm going to be different before I can get help? Uh, you know, wondering how much can I really change of myself so that I can be like one of these people that, that, that seem to be out there that's a strong believer, that they're, they're growing in godly character. And here's the thing, I want to say, say this to you, Trinity Grace Park Slope, you're either going to live a perfect life in thought and action, which I know many of you, this seems unlikely, uh, you're either going to live a perfect life in thought and action, or you're going to have to, as a practice in your life, learn to admit wrong, to admit harmful thinking, to admit uh, actions that are damaging, and then to change them. You're either going right, to you're either going to live perfectly, or you're going to have to figure out a way to admit when you've gone wrong, and then to course correct. That seems like probably you didn't. You know, no matter where you are on the religious belief spectrum, you probably believe that on one way or another. We have to have ways to say, listen, I've gone wrong in how I've been thinking. I've gone wrong in how I've been acting. I've gone wrong in my relationships. I've gone wrong in my work. I've gone wrong in my, in my personal life in some way. I need to admit that and I need to be able to course correct. And here's the thing. God seems to indicate in the scriptures over and over and over again that God is a specialist in helping people to admit where they've gone wrong or where harmful behaviors have taken hold in their life and then to change that. So, we have one of the most famous prayers in the world for that exact thing, for admitting where we've gone wrong in our thought and action and for changing it. David, um, right, this famously is said of him, right? He's the, he was the king of Israel. Uh, he was the king of Israel during Israel's most, the most celebrated time in Israel's history, the golden age, if you will. And David is famously uh, called a man after God's own heart. You've heard that phrase before. If you've heard, if you've heard David mentioned in a sermon, more than likely you've heard it mentioned that he was a man after God's own heart. But if you look at David's life, that's a challenging moniker to explain in a bunch of different situations. His life is by no means perfect. In fact, he has some spectacular and horrific failures. Many, many, like some people, if you know two things about David, one of them you know is the story of Bathsheba and the murder and the conspiracy and and everything that that follows. The other one's probably like he killed the giant once. He's really good with a sling and five stones, and they're all smooth. Um, so we're we're left to wonder a little bit. What 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 could God have meant when He said David is a man who's after my my heart? And I, I, I don't know exactly, um, but I think it, it had something to do with the fact that literally David was after God's heart. And um, what we have we David's like one of the only people who we have the history of his life, but then we also have like a peek into his journal. And so you have the types of prayers that he prayed to God. And in a bunch of situations, we we know some of what was going on in his life when he was praying these type of prayers. And so across the spectrum of situations in David's life, he was actually just after God's own heart. I don't think that the the phrases necessarily meant that, like, different than anyone else, David's heart was good, or different than anyone else, David's heart was pure, or different than anyone else, David was removed from the possibility of making horrific mistakes, because he obviously did. But I think that it means that when he was victorious, he was seeking God's heart. When he was healthy, he was seeking God's heart. When he was confused, he was seeking God's heart. We actually have his words recorded. When he was defeated, He was seeking God's heart when he was in power. He was seeking God's heart when he was on the run, when he was in celebration, when he finally gets caught in this conspiracy and adultery and and, and even murder. David kept returning to the heart of God in any condition of his life, and that became what shaped his life. I think that's really important. He kept returning to the heart of God in any condition of his life and that's what shaped his life. Ultimately, that's what gave it its definition. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Last week, we, we borrowed some of David's words to say, search me, oh God. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me. Test my, test my anxiousness. See see what is truly present in me, God. And we, we said, if you're going to have a real relationship with God, honestly, if you're going to have a real relationship with anyone, you're going to have to practice searching, searching conversation. In, in the case of God, searching prayer. You're going to have to practice the art of making yourself vulnerable. And we're, today we're going to pick up the second part of that and say, what do you do if you're have the courage enough to be honest and vulnerable, and then you find, or you know that God sees something in you that needs to be changed. What, what do you do if you find some 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 thought or action or pattern or behavior or habit or lifestyle that goes against God? That goes against God God's characters. That that's that's harmful to yourself and who you're meant to be. That damages. The, our, our, your community, our community that sort of tears at the fabric of our life, what do you do in that instance? How do you change? Here's my, here's my contention. It's not a, not a wild theory. But if we're gonna thrive in the world, if we're gonna walk with God now and forever, if we're gonna live in relationships that actually make it, If we're if we're gonna be filled with God's love and and that love's gonna shape our relationships with other people, we're gonna have to learn the ancient art of confession and repentance. (laughs) And we've mentioned this many times in here. Repentance is a word that we kind of need to bring back from the fringe. Like it's not just something that's, that's shouted at people in, in, in angry rallies or on the subway through a, a muffled bullhorn. Repentance is a very simple, it is a spiritual word. We do find it a lot in the scriptures, but essentially it means to say, I'm going a certain direction and I recognize this direction is not right, not healthy, it's damaging, it's, it's cutting against wholeness, it's cutting against holiness, and I want to change and turn and go in a different direction. That's That's what what repentance is. It's the ability to change with God involved. So we have to learn the, the ancient art of confession and repentance, of admitting where we've gone wrong, inviting God into the process of change. So this prayer, Psalm 51, which we just read, it moves around quite a bit. I was tempted to read it again uh, the, the whole thing to you, but i 'm just trusting that it 's in your mind, and uh, I basically just want to do this very simply. I want to show you a few crucial elements that are in this ancient art of confession and repentance, and see if see if we can 't engage in the process. Together, the first thing that I want to say, and, and I think if you trace you know the, the, the fifteen or so verses of this, this this prayer of confession, you see that sin damages all of our relationships. This is such a a, a, a classic pastoral Christian thing to say we live it, it is, i think there 's great temptation in the hyper individualism of our time and the messages that we ingest as a culture to basically think that sin is an outdated idea like Sin has to do with like you know certain chocolates or you know sin has to do with uh, you know I, I don't know whatever just like some some like minor indulgence that you get into that's just that's just how, how you spend the weekend and, and sin a, as a concept of of truly being damaging to our to our psyche to our well being as humans to the fabric of our community to our relationship with God um, it, it, we ha- we have to bring it back from the edge a, a, a little bit. There's a temptation in our, in our hyper-individual world to say, basically, listen, everyone has their own truth. Everyone has their own way. They simply have to have the courage and the money um, to find out what that is and then to, to, to live it out. And, um, but, but I think even if, even if the word sin strikes us as, as a little bit archaic and a little bit um, you know, maybe from, from a different time, we know something of it even if we don't like even if you don't believe in god we know something of, of sin from the fact that we we struggle to keep our own standards we've we've mentioned this type of of thing before but we fail our own plans <laughs> Never mind, like a holy God or the Ten Commandments. Like I can't keep my own resolutions for twelve full months. I, I I I I struggle to 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 live out fully and vibrantly the promises I make to myself, the promises I make to my friends and family, my my, my my spouse. So I I know something about sin because I hurt people that I love. Sometimes I hurt people that I love more than I am like I'm I'm, a, I'm really kind to strangers. Um, but you know, when I when I finally have my guard down, I'm, I'm hurting the people that I love the most. I I know something of sin because I try to meet the deepest needs of my life, which are real and profound and maybe even God given. I try to meet the deepest needs of my life out of the my own resources, and I find many times that I'm failing to do that. I am discontented. I am not. I am not satisfied. I I, I am struggling to meet the deepest needs of my soul out of my own resources. So whatever else you think about Christianity, I know a lot of you are, are, are on board and are believers, but I think this is important to mention. The scriptures have a really robust philosophy of personhood. And they say, like, fundamentally, we are relational beings. We're made to, to know and love God, to, made to, to be known and love, uh, love others. And when we choose against that way of love, that we cut against our wholeness. That's sin, <laughs> that you're made as a relational being to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, to tr- truly be woven into the fabric of the human community in such a way that you start to experience the blessed freedom of caring about someone else as much as you care about yourself. The joy of self-forgetfulness to, to move into someone else's story instead of demanding that people revolve around you. That that's actually the fabric of what you are made for and when you cut against that and you let selfishness rule or you demand people orbit around you, that you're actually you're cutting against your own wholeness. You're cutting against something of the fabric of how you were made. And that's what the scripture calls sin. It's not just doing a bad thing. Sometimes it's, it's doing a whole bunch of good things to prop up your identity out of your own resources. So the scripture insists that God is different and separate than us. That's what like, bizarrely, it means for God to be holy, which is something that we sing and we celebrate, we raise our hands and say God is holy, and sometimes we're, like, forgetting a little bit that what that means is different than us, and separate from us, like, in God's, the substance of God's character, there's a difference from God to us, but... God, in whatever the project of redemption he's up to in the world, is to bring us into that holiness, is to welcome us into his wholeness, is to bring us into the very community at the heart of his being, to welcome us in his family, to embrace us, to put his actual character, his divine being in our lives. That's part of what redemption is, to to make us like him. And when we choose selfishness or to be our own gods, we cut against that difference. We cut against the wholeness that is true of God. So this happens to all of us and we happen to have an example in the history of his life and from his prayer journal of how this worked for David. Basically, David's like most glaring utter complicated failure and conspiracy and all, all. we know something of the progression of it. and I just want to give you a little bit of how, how it worked really quickly the first thing is and, and this is like for where the story ends I think this is really telling that David's progression towards this massive failure that he finds himself in it begins with a compromise in his routines <laughs> He's supposed to go off and to, to, to lead the, the army. He's supposed to, to be the political uh, and, and, and military leader of the nation of Israel. This is what he's been anointed for. This is what he's been called for. And he begins to compromise in his routines and his vocation. The, t- the time came where he was supposed to leave Jerusalem and go out and lead the people he was called to lead, but instead he didn't. And you know what this looks like. In New York, you know, you know this. It's like, I've worked really hard for a long time. Long time, you don't know what it's, it's it's like. you don't know how my boss is, you don't know what the last season was like, and what happens is we have worked really hard, and so what crops up in us is a little bit of entitlement. <laughs> Like I deserve, and then fill in the blank. I deserve this indulgence. I deserve this break, right? And so it starts innocently enough where we compromise on our routines and we begin to sort of puff up our pride with this little sense of deserving and entitlement. And listen, I'm not, this is not, I'm not railing on self-care or saying that you shouldn't take a Sabbath or saying that you shouldn't take a vacation. But I am saying, I noticed this in myself. There is a connection between really hard times of outpouring in my life and a little cropping up of a sense of like, I I deserve this and that entitlement can become indulgence and then all of a sudden I'm trying to look down a bunch of wells to find life and refreshment that they do not have the capacity to give me what I want. And essentially that's what happens with David. He makes a small compromise in his, his routines and his vocation and we know that he had a robust and vibrant life of bringing his heart regularly before God but something had be, had begun to be altered in his daily movements and so that that put him in a certain place and so well before he's walking on the balcony of the palace and he happens to look over right and it's like oh someone's taking a bath there now right you have a choice in that moment which is like oh time to go back inside I don't need to see these people bathing but David doesn't do that he says that entitlement extends just a little bit longer right his appetites now have become they've they've risen up to be some 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 sort of primary thing in him and so he stands there and instead of saying oh I should go back this isn't my place to see this he he stands and he lingers <laughs> I had a, a youth pastor who had a fantastic alliterated phrase for all the young men in the youth he's like don't let a glance become a gaze become a gaunt brother like that see how it's all g's David did that. Glance became a gaze, became a gawk. Basically, um, his imagination became inflamed with lust. His appetites became primary. His desire for another person's body sort of cut against the reality that they're a whole person, right? This is, this is what happens when we misuse our sexuality is that we say, I'm gonna use this person's body to meet the needs of my appetites and I'm gonna forget that they have a soul. <laughs> Actually, that they are a soul encased in, 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 in a body and I'm gonna use their body for my own appetites. And so David's lust sort of captures his imagination and, he, and it becomes an abuse of power and then his distorted imagination becomes adulterous action. He goes ahead and says, you know, I deserve this so much that I'm going to bend the rules a little bit. I can. They're my rules anyway. And, uh, and 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 he brings Bathsheba into his bed. And then comes the cover up. This is true, right? We see this way. We see this with our politicians. I think we see this if we're honest in our own personal lives. So often trying to keep up appearances and not admit that we've gone wrong is the place where we triple the damage, and and it's the conspiracy and the cover-up that actually leads to death in this instance with, with David. Um, in trying to keep up appearances, we often do the most damage. There was this uh, conspiracy, more abuse of power, and then finally, finally murder. So, it's kind of easy to see because there's big blocks and it's so dramatic, but... David experienced the pain and the weight of these choices and it damaged all of his relationships. We talk at Trinity Grace a lot about how do you understand our place in the world? It's a relational place. It's, uh, you know... His his relationship with God was damaged. His understanding of his self and his identity was damaged. His relational framework and fabric with other people was harmed. His place in society, in the world, his his vocation's relationship to his community was 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 marred. I'll just, I just I won't say much about each of these, but this is like all the way back to the garden. <laughs> When, when the, the lie enters that God's not really after our, our well-being and can't be trusted and that we can be our own gods and we can meet the deepest needs of our life in some other way, the damage comes in first in our relationship with God, but it quickly spreads like a cancer to every one of our other relationships. And so, so th- there was a sense that David had of distance and fear from God. The place he's supposed to be the most safe and the most intimate, he's, he's resistant to that connection. Um, He has a a sense of of his identity being damaged. He's haunted by fear and guilt and shame and those type of questions of like, are you ever gonna really change? Are you ever gonna be really different? Can you really be trusted? Those type of questions. Uh, Others, it's obvious. right? He brings um, chaos and deep pain into his relational world. And then as I mentioned, in his society there was a spilling out um, of damage to his vocation as king in in his society. So, In summary, the scriptures say that our broken connection with God because of sin has damaged and distorted our lives on every single level. That it is the most substantial challenge facing human beings. It is the source of our ills. It is the source of injustice. It is the source of brokenness. But the beauty is that God... Uh, has found a way to deal with this disease of sin in the world. And you're like, you you knew we were going there, but I just want to say this. I think it's so beautiful to remember. This is right out of the gate in this prayer of repentance. Is you see that the foundation for repentance, or the foundation for spiritual change, if you prefer to say it that way, is God's unfailing love. It is a wide, foundation. It is a foundation that our imagination has to be stirred by the Holy Spirit to know how long and deep and, and wide and true it is. <laughs> Have mer- Listen to how David starts. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. What David what drives David's confidence in pursuing mercy and forgiveness and being new is what has to drive ours, right? He doesn't say have mercy on me, oh God, because I I swear I'm never doing that again. I'm done watching people take baths, God. I promise, you can install like the safety net on my balcony. I'm not going to look through Triple X software right there at the at the balcony level. I'm not going to look at people taking baths anymore, right? He doesn't say I promise I'm gonna be, uh, be different. That's not the foundation <laughs> of his confidence that he's gonna receive mercy. It's not our ability to clean ourselves up. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not our ability to keep our promises to be better. We come to the place of repentance on the foundation of God's character. This prayer that David, that David prays actually foreshadows the gospel of Jesus. And w- what I mean is, there's a very specific way that David is supposed to go about repenting from this type of thing. Like in the law of Moses, it's so specific, right? They had been living as slaves in Egypt and their lives had been had been like less than worthless in the eyes of the Egyptians. And so as God reforms their character as a people and gives them freedom and, and reconstitutes them to be the people of God, he gives them specific instructions. If someone commits adultery this way, here's what you do. If someone commits murder, here's what you do. And there were, there were sacrifices and confessions that are supposed to to be done. And David says this, he does not go about the normal way of repenting in the Old Testament. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What? That's exactly what you're supposed to do. Somehow, and maybe this is something connected to what was in David's heart, he doesn't follow the exact prescribed path and he calls out for a new type of mercy to be released in the world for himself. He is looking forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's like David knew, listen, this ceremony in the temple with some bull is not gonna cover what I've done. It's not enough. And I have to call out to this God because I don't just need to be forgiven, I need a new heart. I don't just need to be let off the hook for the wrong that I've done, I need to be made new in some substantial way so the pattern of trying to meet the needs of my life and the way that I've been going about it will be different. So he comes asking, right, like not even fully seeing the picture, just knowing all I know of God is that his love is unfailing, that his promises are true, and that the system that we're working with is not gonna work, and he prophetically calls out for the type of redemption that God would release in the person of Jesus. The foundation for repentance is God's unfailing love. It is God's character. This is a story about his healing, his restoration. The next crucial aspect I want you to see, and there's only two more, is that confession allows for healing and freedom. I know these seem like the simplest statements in the world and, and obvious observations, but when you move through this prayer, you start to see some of the damage that had taken place in David's... Uh, physical, emotional, spiritual well-being. And so as he, as he cries out these different phrases, you realize some of the stuff that had gone wrong. And confession allows for healing and freedom. He, he says, renew a steadfast spirit in me. You don't have to ask for the renewal of your spirit unless your spirit had begun to grow grow weak. And some of you guys know this. You feel like, I know what it's like to be stuck in a pattern and to wake up in the morning. I've got no energy. My eyes feel dim. I can't, I have nothing that I'm looking forward to. I have no sense of like, why do I want to keep keeping these commitments? Life is so difficult, right? And you know what it's like to pray a prayer, like renew a steadfast spirit in me. Like make me come alive in the innermost part of myself so that I can stand on my own two feet so that I can I can look out at the world with clear eyes again he says let the bones you have crushed rejoice he right right he admits like in my inner being there has been a a damage to my physical emotional spiritual mental well-being that's what sin does right We're, we're relational beings and when we cut against the fabric of those relationships it does damage to us at every level restore to me the joy of your salvation he He's not saying, listen, I've done this thing wrong. I need my record expunged. He's saying, I've done this thing wrong. I need to be embraced. It is about a relational connection. Restore to me the joy of us being together. I wanna say this to you, and I, I know this so clearly personally. I know it from sitting and praying with so many of you. Confession throws open the shade. It lets light in to places where it, 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 that have been starved for life. It, 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 confession is the giving up of the exhaustion of keeping up appearances. It is a humbling of yourself to saying, I cannot carry this burden anymore and I don't have to. It is saying, listen, confession is saying, I choose the relationship over maintaining my image because who cares how well you can maintain your image if basically you're just alone, Confession is saying, I choose the relationship over maintaining my end. It is bringing light to the darkness. It is saying, I want things that are in me to be seen as there really are. Do you know the freedom of not having secrets? All right, people in recovery, they have this mantra. They say, you're only as sick as your secrets. And confession is throwing open the shade and letting the light come in. I want to say this as, as just a, a, a corrective because sometimes I think a word like repentance is so churchy and weighty and heavy that we can imagine you, it's a, the type of thing that's appropriate for a, a, you know, a series of mistakes like what David makes. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get into repentance when I'm, you know, like, you know, when I was hopped up on drugs and, and I slept with someone that's not my spouse and then I killed a bunch of people, then I'll do repentance. But, <laughs> how do you think about that? Huh? That's how, how you do it how they do it in the movies, is confession and repentance has to be a normal part of our life on every level. It is there for massive failures, for when we have blown it and we know it and it's so clear and it's obvious that like our life is crumbling uh, all, all around us, but it's also there for addictions and strongholds. And, and, and stronghold is a, is a word that you find in the scripture for basically like something that has a hold of your thoughts or a hold of your, your behavior that's beyond your willpower to change. Some of you guys will know this really clearly from wrestling with anxiety or wrestling with depression or wrestling with some, some addictive behavior that's like, I want to change this so bad and yet I can't, right? We need confession and repentance for our massive failures. We need it for our addictions and strongholds, but we also need it for our, our everyday double lives, <laughs> Like when you're one person with one group of people, and someone else with another, it's a, it's a little bit of evidence that like you're maintaining your 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 image in in this particular way, but you're not being true in integrity with yourself. We need confession and repentance for like ordinary lazy habits. Like I'm wasting time at work. I'm wasting. Uh, I'm wasting time. I'm, I'm in conversation. I'm constantly taking the easy road into gossip town instead of instead of like just having meaningful conversation with someone about what's going on in their life. It's like so much easier sort of to get into the juice about what's going on with someone else. It just becomes a lazy a lazy habit, right? We we instead of dealing with my my life and my emotions, like I just get a six pack and turn on Seinfeld, right? What what are like I know what I'm going to get from this. We also need confession and repentance for daily pride, right? The way that we use anger to control people in our most intimate relationships, the way that we assert ourselves and we try to win with those we love. We need confession and repentance for all of these things in our life. And and sometimes it is like, you know, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts you and you realize you've been hiding for for a long time and you, you collapse in tears and you pray out to God and then sometimes it's just like you're walking away from your spouse and you're like, God, I know I shouldn't have said that. I do not have the humility to go back to her and say, I shouldn't have said that. Help me. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. You know, like, it's that simple. It's confessing that I need God in this moment and confessing that He can redirect me out of my pride and back into a place of love. We need prayers of confession as a, as a regular part of our life. And here's the thing. It works. It really works. And it's not because we're great at it, but because God loves to restore. God loves to heal. God loves to forgive, loves to show show love. He loves to put us back on our feet. He loves to heal our vision. He loves to give us strength. If you will practice confession and repentance, your restoration can be complete. Our restoration can be complete. This is the last thing I want to observe from this psalm with you guys. Is that the restoration that God's bringing, the plans he has for your life is for your restoration to be complete. For you to be whole, for you to be holy like God is holy and not in some sanctimonious, better than everyone else religious way, but in some way that you are true to the very image of God that you were created in and you're living fully alive in the unique way God has made you to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what holiness means. It doesn't mean that you get up at 3.30 and you pray for six hours, uh, hours a day. For someone it might mean that, but for, for, for so many of us, it just means living fully alive as God has made us to be. Listen to what happens in the psalm. He says, make me clean. Clean me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. This is dealing with the guilt and the shame. Not that you need to know so much about the difference between the two because they can feel similar, but guilt is like we know we've done something wrong and we feel bad about it. Shame is like we, f- we begin to feel like we are something wrong, <laughs> We internalize the voice of the critic on ourselves and we say, listen, this is just who I am, let alone that I made this mistake. This is, I am a mistake. And he's saying, I want you to clean me of my guilt and shame. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snows. But then he also says, forgiveness is not enough. Basically, he's like, I need a new heart. Create in me a pure heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. He also admits that it's relational. I don't want to be away from your presence. Give me your Holy Spirit. Do not take your spirit away from me. He says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. I think that David wins uh, humility and wisdom out of this bout of confession and repentance what I mean by that is he doesn't just return to innocence. It's not like God forgives him and he goes back to being a person who never looked at that woman on the balcony or, or never conspired to have a, a soldier murdered for, for his own lust's sake. He still was that person, but now he re- received mercy and forgiveness and so he has the humility and wisdom. He's like, I know what I'm capable of, but I also know what God is capable of. And he has a renewed vocation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. In this process of confession and repentance, David remembers who he is. Remembers that his call is to faithfully represent Yahweh in his life and his rule as king. We would be missing a massive part of a life of prayer if we do not discuss that we have to have a regular practice, a daily practice of confession and repentance. And I wanna say this to you on, on the basis of God's character and God's promises. If you will confess and invite God into the process of spiritual change, if you will confess and repent, there is nothing of the kingdom of God that he will hold back from you. There is nothing that like is off limits to you as God's son or daughter if we will learn the practice of confession and repentance. If we'll continually say, God, let there be nothing that I'm holding back from you and if you would search me, O oh God, and, and find the thing in me that I'm holding back from you, I'll give it again. And on a daily basis, I'll live in this place of surrender. I'll be like David after your heart on a regular basis. There is absolutely nothing that he will hold back from you. The way of forgiveness and mercy, and David prophetically knew this, has been opened up for us. What do you think about our cross? It's huge. It's beautiful. I wanted to put this up because as I'm talking about confession and repentance, I don't in any way want you to mistake mistake it for the normal pattern of self-help that is in our world. I'm not saying pull yourselves up by your bootstrap, strengthen your resolution, get out there with your willpower and be different. I'm saying we're talking about a relational process of surrender. We're on the cross. Jesus said, it is finished because every single one of our massive failures, our addictions and strongholds, our, our lazy habits, our, 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 our relational compromise, our daily pride, all of that was laid on the person of Jesus so that you don't have to pay the penalty for it with your own guilt and shame that was laid on Jesus. And our process of confession and repentance is not self-help, it is utter surrender to the love of God. And the cross is a reminder that when we come, we're restoring a relationship that God has gone to, to great lengths to say, I bring you into my family. Here's the, the last thing I wanna say is that when you confess and repent, it's not gonna be like getting up and walking and holiness is gonna be easy. I don't, want, I don't wanna sell you a false bill of goods here. It's still gonna be challenging to deny yourself, but we're not denying ourselves as an end in itself. We're denying ourselves for something better, for the abundant life that is promised in God, for the embrace that we were most meant to experience in relationship. So, I wanna make space for us this morning to confess our hearts to God, to invite the Holy Spirit into a relational process of spiritual change for us to confess and repent. So, here's what we have. We have this huge cross (laughs) Because sometimes it's just helpful for our imagination to, to have a, a, an artifact, to have, to have something to see and to remember the love of Christ. There's also a bowl at the bottom of the cross. Um, and this bowl is there um, for you as you came in. We, we, we pass out little index cards. I want to say this, don't write your name on it. Um, no one's going to read the things that you put in the bowl, but uh, the, the idea is that for some of us it can be meaningful and helpful and, and, and stir our imaginations in the right direction to say, I'm going to write down something that I need God to change, something that I find in my, my pattern of thoughts or my pattern of behavior or my relational world or my vocation, something that needs to change. I'm going to write that down and I'm going to come and put it. At the, at the feet of Jesus, I'm gonna lay it at the cross and say, I believe that the victory Jesus won on the cross is effective enough for this situation. I believe that Christ's redemption is stronger and, and, and more effective than my ability to sin, right? If we don't believe that, we're sort of like giving ourselves a little bit of pride at how great we are at messing up. Ultimately, nothing you, like look at King David, look at Peter, like nothing you could possibly do beats their sins. And, and, and basically what I mean to say is nothing you could possibly do is stronger than that cross. So we lay down the burdens we've been carrying. We lay open our hearts before God, and it can just help just to write it down and to leave it at the cross and say, God, will you take this thing? And instead, will you give me your abundant life? The last thing I want to mention is is um, you can 't see them, but we have some some beautiful, fancy IKEA rugs we bought them just this week for this, and they 're up here at the front and The last thing I want to mention is is the rugs and the family. Um, some of you uh, <laughs> it 's really important uh, to to move uh, your posture is is going to help inform your your mentality in, in, in a lot of ways. And so sitting in a wooden um, seat in a middle school auditorium under fluorescent lights can be challenging. And so we wanted to make some space where you can come and kneel and sit and lay down uh, and, and just say, I, I'm surrendering myself to God. Nobody's gonna come by and bother you. Somebody might come by and just, just stand behind you and silently pray, but, but if you wanna come and just interact with God and, 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 and kneel before him, we have this space that is open for you. Uh, there's no pressure whatsoever, but I wanna invite you to come and lay anything that you need to at the feet of Jesus. I wanna come and invite you to put yourself before God. And, and for us to do that, we kinda have to trust one another enough Like you don't know the person kneeling on the rug. They're not necessarily particularly more jacked up than you. They might be praying for you. So don't judge them, okay? We just wanna have the freedom to put ourselves before God and to trust one another enough to do it together. So I'm gonna pray and then I wanna invite you to come to the tables of communion, to come to the cross, to come and kneel, to come and pray, to come confess your heart To invite God into the places where you need change and to know that the way is open by the power of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I think this morning of the things you've already brought to my mind. The patterns of thought or, or action that I want to change. And I'm so grateful that your spirit can reveal those. That when we when we pray, search me, O God, that you will. And then whatever we find, we don't have to be dismayed or, or sunk because of what we find in our hearts or in our lives, we can, we can vent it to you and find mercy, find newness, find life. So I pray that you would release in this room a sense of courage in your presence, a sense that what Jesus has done on the cross is enough for our redemption and we can be free and alive in you. I pray over the elements, over the bread and the cup as we come and partake. May we be nourished by your love. May we lay our burdens at the cross and may we kneel in your presence and be healed. Give us courage, Lord. Let us be family and be safe with one another in these next moments as we worship, as we respond. Guide us in Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're gonna invite you to go ahead and stand right now. We're gonna start worshiping. You'll notice um, we kind of have a little bit of a different pattern of how to how to come up and receive communion because we want to keep this space open for people to come and kneel or 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 or, or lay down before the Lord or whatever sit sit in God's presence. And so, um, if you'll just come and and, and receive communion. If you want to take a moment and write, write something that's on your heart, you want to confess to God and come and leave it at the cross, please, please do that. We just want this to be an open and free space. Please feel free to move around, to get out into the aisles, to come down, come down front. People would love to pray with you. As the Holy Spirit leads you, would you please respond? Um, As soon as I stop talking in just a second, you're free to begin coming forward for communion, to pray. Uh, to leave whatever you would like at the foot of the cross and to respond to God in confession and repentance. Churches, we're ready. Let's, let's worship and respond.